Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now remember, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be a new guest for Dr. Doctor, Dr. Robert Collins, a clinical and research oncologist specializing in the treatment of leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma blood cancers. This area has seen tremendous growth in effective treatments of diseases that formerly had dismal prognoses. Chris, why do you think we should do a show on this topic? Yeah, listeners, you know, Lyndon Ear, because this is an important topic. I, I think, um, not so much as a physician, but just as a fellow human, that leukemias and lymphoma, these kinds of cancers, I find them particularly scary. Um, and maybe that's not the right word, but, you know, they're, they're sort of lurking in the dark. Uh, well, there's no big mass. They're in, exactly. They're insidious. They could be anywhere in your body at the yeah. same time. And along that line, they they aren't necessarily age specific. You know, young men, for instance, get testicular cancer. Old guys like you and me, we don't think about testicular cancer. But with leukemias and similar cancers, you essentially are never not at risk of getting one <laughs> in sort of a fatalistic sort of way. I mean, I think if, if you go to the doctor and you say, something is wrong with me, I just don't feel right. Is there any chance it could be leukemia? Well, the answer is always going to be yes. <laughs> so that's kind of scary, I think, in a general sense. It is. You know, there are about 200,000 people a year in the United States who uh, might be diagnosed with leukemia. Right. This is not a rare occurrence. No. Uh, I know in my own life, uh, I joined a father and son in practice uh, many, many years ago in a small town in Southwest Georgia. And just weeks after I joined them, the father was at the height of his practice. Uh, and a few months later, he died of a leukemia. Oh my goodness. He thought he was just very tired. It turned out he had leukemia. How many times have we been really tired and never sure. for a moment thought that we had a leukemia? Not at all. You know, another reason I think leukemias are so I don't know, important and interesting, is it has to do with the way you and I would approach a cancer. And uh, your specialty of dermatology and my specialty of gynecology, if there's a cancer, by golly, we're going to cut it out. You know, That's right. Uh, you're going to do it in a more cosmetically pleasing way than I am. Oh, yours is uh, hidden. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to go after it surgically. And I think there's inherent kind of cultural bias uh, at least in the Western world, we like that we can cut out a cancer. But leukemias, they're treated with medications, with chemotherapy, maybe with radiation, a whole host of other really cool new technologies, but they don't involve a surgery to cut something out. And in some ways, I think that makes it scarier. Right. There is a procedure, which Dr. Collins, Bob's going to talk about, bone marrow transplant, mm. but he's alluded to the fact that that may be go the way of the dinosaur in the next 10 to 20 years because yeah. there'll be better things. Yeah. I mean, clearly from uh, from Bob, I think we'll learn, and from other guests that we've had, you know, the really sci-fi future of cancer treatment probably doesn't involve scalpels and sutures, uh, but probably involves some really cool genetic-based medications and some other really cool technologies. But to your point about bone marrow transplant, we're going to talk, I know, with Bob about stem cells. And we forget sometimes the vocabulary. When we say that, we mean adult stem cells. Correct. And much is said about embryonic stem cells. But adult stem cells, that's what we're using when we do a bone marrow transplant, in many cases cure people of horrible cancers. Um, they play a huge role in leukemias, as we'll learn. They've played a huge role sometimes in, in serious breast cancer cases. Yes. But in no case has embryonic stem cell work treated any disease. 
Yet the press and the media would have us think that if, if those of us opposed to using aborted fetuses for stem cells, if we would just get out of the way, there are people lined up in hospitals that could be magically cured of horrible diseases. But the reality is adult stem cells already cure horrible diseases. And, and I know we're going to talk a lot more about that. And even if those embryonic stem cells did cure something, it still wouldn't make it right to use them because they're always and everywhere immoral to use for that purpose. Exactly. Uh, and really well said. You know, some data that I think our listeners might find interesting or scare them to death. Um, <laughs> you know, about every three minutes, one of us in the United States is diagnosed with leukemia, lymphoma, or myeloma. Imagine that. In, in the course of this show, how many people are going to be diagnosed in America with one of these cancers? And about one and a half million people are now either living in remission with or with active leukemia, lymphoma, or myeloma. And about 160 people a day die of one of these cancers. So it's a big deal. Yeah, it is. I mean, well said. It, it's, it's not at all uncommon, and it strikes people across all age ranges, particularly sad, I, I think we would say. It can strike people right in the prime of their life, uh, whether that's a college student uh, or a young professional recently married with children. Uh, it can strike them when uh, they least expect it. It's also the most common form of cancer in those human beings under the age of 20. Uh, in fact, about a quarter of all cancers they have um, are leukemias. It's, uh, it's just amazing. So this yeah. is especially important. So when they talk about years, potential years of life lost, leukemia is, is the big gun out there because it often has taken the lives of the younger. But as we're going to hear from Bob, there's been great advances in that. Yeah. Who has not been moved to tears by a fundraising commercial of a young child uh, with leukemia, whether it's at a research hospital uh, or others? I mean, our hearts absolutely break when we see this because it, it just seems so somehow unjust <laughs> that such a beautiful, innocent, uh, even infant uh, could develop uh, a leukemia. Yet, as you point out, it happens uh, multiple times every day, but there is hope and we're going to learn a lot more about that uh, from our guest. Well, let's get along to the guest, but we first have a little road bump in the way known as the medical trivia question of the day. So the category, well, blood cells, what else? What else would it possibly be? Precisely. So an astonishing, yes, I do say it, astonishing 80% of all the cells in the average human body are red blood cells. This is not count the bacteria that normally live on and in us. So your question is simple. Which number is greater? Either the number of red blood cells in the average adult human body or the U.S. national debt in dollars. Well, you got a 50% chance of getting it right. Hey, I felt uh, awfully, uh, awfully uh, kind today, generous. So you'll have to hang on till the end of the show to find out, but we'll be back soon on Dr. Doctor with Bob Collins talking about leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma. And we're back with our guest interview today. We are uh, joyful to have with us Robert Collins, Jr., MD, on the topic of hope for leukemia in lymphoma patients. Lymphoma patients. He's a professor of internal medicine who graduated from medical school at University of Missouri, Kansas City, did his internal medicine residency at Baylor, and a fellowship in hematology and oncology at the University of California, Los Angeles, Go Bruins. He's currently director of both the hematologic malignancies blood and marrow transplant program and the combined adult pediatric stem cell transplant program at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. He's a distinguished chair in cancer research. He is an endowed professor in medical research, and he's a recognized leader in the field of adoptive immunotherapy who specializes in blood and marrow transplantation, hematologic malignancies, and he's participated in over 2,500 bone marrow transplants. Bob, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. It's great to be with you guys. And we've got time for the interview after that incredible recitation of only a smattering of his accomplishments. Oh, but I think it's going to be great. So let's start basic. What do we mean and what's included when we talk about your field of hematologic malignancies? Well, hematologic malignancies refers to cancers of pretty much the bone marrow, blood, and immune system. And it can be broken down into three major types. 
leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma. Uh, leukemia is a bone marrow cancer, which uh, leads to just too many abnormal cells in the bone marrow and ultimately can lead to complete failure of the bone marrow to do its job of making blood. Lymphoma is an overproduction of immune cells, which collect, and usually they're collecting in lymph nodes. And so these lymph nodes can grow quite large and compress into other tissues and cause these other tissues to lose their function. And lymph nodes, for the common listeners, what we refer to as often swollen glands when we're sick. Exactly, right? So you've got your, you got a sore throat and you can feel those lumps under your, your jaw. Those would be the lymph nodes. And you actually have those all over the body. And so then the other uh, broad category of blood cancers is multiple myeloma. And this is a cancer of the bone marrow, which leads to anemia and um, renal failure and lytic bone lesions. So a lot of bone pain. And I would just say these are these three broad categories, but actually within hematologic malignancies, there's probably more than 200 specific subtypes. And each, yeah, I know each one of these diseases is um, its own particular disease with its own particular behavior, own particular outlook and um, own particular treatment. Well, so Bob, welcome again. And Tom, once Thanks, again, yes. we've we've managed to find a guest that makes me feel like a professional slob for not having <laughs> not having Chris. not I having done Chris. anything. I noticed that you guys are. <laughs> but you know, Bob, uh, leukemia is generally speaking. Tell me if I'm wrong. Are cancers of the white blood cells? But it, we don't really hear people talking about cancer of the red blood cells, do we? Um, yeah, although actually there is, uh, you know, amongst these more than 200 types of, of um, hematologic malignancies, one of them is actually a cancer of cells which make red blood cells. So this uh, bone marrow cell has mutations in it, which causes it to make way too many red cells and can cause the blood to be very sludgy, like, like molasses and uh, lead to strokes and hemorrhages. So it's actually quite a severe disease. Fortunately, we know a lot about it and can actually treat it. Well, so if you're about to walk into an exam room and all you know is that the patient has a bloodborne cancer, or a, um, statistically speaking, what's it most likely going to be? Um, let's see. Um, probably most likely to be a lymphoma. Uh, uh, those are somewhat more common than the leukemias, hmm. uh, somewhat more common than the, than the myelomas. And how dangerous are they as a group, Bob? Well, I mean, so again, we have these 200 plus subtypes and some of them are actually very quiet behaving and, and mild and people can actually live out normal lifespans with them. But probably, you know, on average, these diseases tend to be, you know, pretty aggressive and pretty severe and, and will be fatal with time without correct diagnosis and treatment. So one of those mild ones is called CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Correct. In operating on skin cancer patients, I see them fairly often mm -hmm. because they're at higher risk for squamous cell cancer of the skin, yet people usually die with that cancer, but not of it. That's it's exactly common, right. isn't it? Yeah, so this is a common type. It's seen in older patients. It tends to be very indolent in its clinical behavior. And patients can live out a normal lifespan without ever even requiring treatment for that particular disease. Um, sometimes it does get to where they require treatment, and we have some really good treatments and sort of in the, the themes that we're going to be talking about here later on. So, so Bob, for these bloodborne type cancers, what's the most common presenting symptom that an adult patient uh, would come to you with? Well, again, it would have to do with the type. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, some patients can have, um, you know, no symptoms at all, and they, they are found by just an abnormal blood count. Uh, sometimes they can have um, fever or pain or sometimes really quite pronounced fatigue and a, a lump. And, you know, any of that can lead them to the physician who is going to go ahead and, and do a series of specialized tests to figure out what they actually have. Yeah, I think we talked about that in the intro. I think that's what's somewhat scary, you might say, about these cancers is other than the lump, I've had all of those symptoms you mentioned just in the last 72 hours. <laughs> that's it. So. Yeah, so it's frightening to think, you know, the answer could always be a leukemia to some degree or another. Yeah, fortunately, in the big scheme of things, they're, they're, they're relatively rare. I mean, yeah. but aren't we as doctors always, this is our concern is we're <laughs> like hypochondriacs and everything yes. that we have, we know yes. that it's the worst possible thing. Well, I remember, you know, a little over 30 years ago when Chris and I were in medical school, diagnosis of leukemia in a friend or relative was universally mourned. How would you say in that 30 years since, say, 1990, 91, how in general has treatment changed? Big picture. Um, 
paint picture is that way back then, um, we didn't know anything about these cancers, about mm -hmm. what, what drove them and, and the molecular basis of them at all. And so there's just like a black box. It's, it's like trying to fix a car without knowing anything about the engine. Ooh. So what we've learned um, about in these past few decades is a lot about what actually drives these cancers. So we understand the mechanisms and that begins to lead to new uh, mechanistic uh, or mechanism based treatments that we've been able to develop. And another big approach over the past few years is, has been the, the understanding that we can harness the power of the immune system to attack um, these blood cancers. And this has been a very powerful thing. So we've gone from not knowing anything about the disease to understanding a lot, and that leads to more specific and effective therapies in many cases. Well, let's start with a story at this point. I think you've got a good story to illustrate uh, cancer that used to be commonly fatal that's no longer so, called CML. Yeah, right. So um, this has been a huge story. I, I, I can actually think back um, at the beginning of my career, one of the probably the first CML patient I saw was a young guy dying, like an 18 year old kid on a ventilator in the ICU dying of this disease. And um, what, what happens with this disease is it's a cancer of bone marrow cells, which make too many blood cells. And initially, it's a pretty quiet, indolent thing. But they acquire additional abnormalities, these additional mutations that put it into overdrive into what they call a blast crisis, which is rapidly fatal. So this kid that I was seeing back then was dying of a blast crisis and everyone would go into the blast crisis, usually within four or five years. Hmm. Um, bone marrow transplantation actually could cure some of these people. It wasn't an option for this particular young patient, um, but it was a very toxic therapy. It wasn't always effective and it was you know, very toxic and sometimes fatal. So we were looking for something better. And what happened really decades of research led to this deep understanding of the mechanism of this particular type of leukemia. It was driven by an overactive enzyme called BCR-ABLE. And drugs were developed, one drug in particular was developed that was specifically specific for this target, selectively targeted it, and began to be used in the, the late 1990s. And I remember being at a big meeting in New Orleans, it was, and all of us heard this data where like the first 35 patients who'd been treated, all of them had had complete remissions and like all of us. All of them. Everyone. I, I want to say all but one. And That's and amazing. So it was. And so all of us sitting in the in the audience just sort of fell out of our chair in mass. And, and we knew that something, you know, huge had happened here. So, you know, just go forward a, a year or so and I'm treating a patient in the clinic. She's a young woman in her 30s and she's got a husband and four four little kids and she's been diagnosed with this disease and it used to would have been a death sentence mm. but now we put her on you know, as part of this clinical trial we put her on this targeted drug which she tolerated very well uh, within a short time her blood counts were normal within just a few months there was no evidence of disease that we could detect actually there would have been some though if we had a sensitive enough test to pick it up but with time, over years, um, she was able to stop the medication and she's off of it. I don't even see her anymore. She lives out in West Texas and wow. she gives me a call on the phone once a year because it's on my birthday. <laughs> it happens to be her birthday too. So Edith has <laughs> given me her yearly update on how great things are. And so this is actually a common, common story with CML. I have dozens, scores of patients in my clinic who have CML and we're, we're controlling them with the first generation drug called imatinib, which is what she was on or one of the second or third or now fourth generation drugs. Um, but you know, most of them do really well. Some have to remain on the drug for the rest of their life. Some we're finding can actually stop the drug. So they are effectively cured of this disease that used to be 100% fatal. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah, it, that, it's just so amazing. You move from treatment to cure, essentially. Yeah. Um, and we don't get to say that with serious diseases in medicine very often. No, no, we don't. So it's it's a wonderful thing, and we've we've hoped that we'll be able to move that to other diseases, and that's what we're seeing. So I mean, this was like just an example, a relatively rare leukemia, but it was an example of of the power of you know this rational medicine where you understand the me the mechanisms of it, and then can come up with treatments to target it. So, so Bob, you referenced during that story a bone marrow transplant, and I'll bet a lot of our listeners really don't fully understand what that actually is yeah maybe, without being too technical so tom and i can understand maybe you could walk us through what what actually happens with a bone marrow transplant well so this this is generally done in sort of the the most severe types of blood cancers and 
initially the patient will receive a high dose of chemotherapy and sometimes radiation to just wipe out their sick bone marrow. And then they'll receive healthy cells from a donor. It can be a matched sibling, it can be another family member, it can be an unrelated person. It can be cells derived from an umbilical cord unit. And so those cells are given intravenously to the patient and they go into the bloodstream and home to the bone marrow. Uh, their old bone marrow has been wiped out, so there's space for these new cells to take root. So the new cells take root and they grow up within two or three weeks and you know gradually repopulate the patient's entire bone marrow and their entire immune system. And it can, it can absolutely be curative of a number of bad diseases. The problem is that it's very toxic, as you can imagine, with mm -hmm. these high doses of chemotherapy. And it's also possible that the immune system from the donor can attack the patient. And this can be a really severe attack called graft versus host disease. Yes. And it can be fatal. Now, now, the thing that we've learned about this type of treatment, though, the bone marrow transplants from a donor, is that um, much of how the, it's working is actually from the immune system of the donor attacking the patient's cancer cells. Mm. Oh my. And so that's probably, it's actually probably the main way that it works. And this was one of our early insights into this idea that you can harness the cellular immune system of a donor to attack the patient's cancer. Well, you know, I'll, it hasn't been that long since, you know, the topic of movies where, you know, a bone marrow transplant was experimental. Mm -hmm. uh, so how long would you say that's been more mainstream therapy? Oh, it's been standard of care for probably 25 years. Wow. That's and, just um, a sign of how long we've been around. But that is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that it, it remains, you know, excessively toxic. And yeah. I think that it's it's gradually going to be replaced by some of these other therapies that we're talking about. And, you know, the, the one thing that I think has been real exciting is this insight that immune cells are attacking the cancer and actually curing the patient. And that's- So how has that insight led to new treatments, Bob? Well, so it's, we look at that and we say, okay, this is powerful, but it's too potentially toxic and too risky. So we need to come up with better ways of doing this. So. Uh, the field has really been working on that. There's been an amazing um, amount of work done in immunotherapy. And there's many different ways of doing it, but one of the approaches is to take immune cells from a patient. So take their own immune cells. And so take those out and re-engineer them in the laboratory so that they'll attack the patient's cancer. Hmm. So then re-infuse their own cells to attack the cancer. And because it's from their own self, it's not you're not gonna have this graft versus host phenomenon, but you can still harness this incredibly powerful um, you know, immune attack. And I mean, it's, I could illustrate with another case. So, so, so how do you use the patient's own cells when the patient's own cells have a cancer lurking in them? Right. Well, so you, you take out a bunch of their blood cells and it has good and bad stuff in it and you isolate the, the good cells. So you isolate good T cells. And so then these T cells using gene therapy, you re-engineer them so that they will attack the patient's um, cancer. And so then they're reinfused and then those attack the patient's cancer. Wow. Um, so like the first, <laughs> this is another one of those fall out of your chair things. I mean, sure. the first um, successful case of this was carried out, gosh, probably almost 10 years, almost 10 years ago. And um, this little girl, she's six or seven years old. Her name is Emily, I think. And, um, she had acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is a common, the most common cancer in children and usually curable with standard chemotherapy. But she was a really unfortunate one who wasn't going to be cured with her chemotherapy. So she was going to die. And she probably had a few weeks to live, but got on this experimental therapy where they took out her cells and re-engineered them in the laboratory and re-infused them into her. And within like a short time, three, four weeks, she was in a remission, which has lasted for years. So, I mean, she, she is literally the poster child of this field. I mean, we get to see a picture of this great kid growing up. She's a teenager now. Um, so this, this remarkable um, response in this particular patient led to a lot more work in this particular field. And it's called cellular immunotherapy. The, the common therapy, like the type that she had is called CAR T-cell therapy. It stands for chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy. But essentially, that means this re-engineering of, of the patient's T-cells to attack their cancer. And so now this is standard of care medicine. I mean, we're doing it in patients with advanced and refractory leukemias, myelomas, wow. lymphomas. And this is just sort of the first generation of this treatment. So there's additional iterations of it. 
I mean, you can essentially design a T cell to do whatever you want it to do now. So um, <laughs> we are at the cusp of a really exciting area. That, that's so amazing, Bob. I mean, I remember, I think it might've been two decades ago at a, being at a medical conference and hearing a breakout session from a futurist who was saying, you know, now we give you poison to kill your cancer and hope that it doesn't kill you. But one day in the future, yeah. we're, we're going to do things to make you attack your own cancer. And, you know, people would roll their eyes and think, yeah. oh, that's pretty far-fetched. I know. But, but now it's mainstream therapy. That's so Here we are. Yeah, we're living the dream now, for real. <laughs> I mean, I must say, it was kind of the dream back when I was, um, I'm about you guys's and so back in the day when I started to go into to the field, it was that was the dream that you would be understanding the disease mechanisms better and coming up with mechanism targeted therapy and that you would be harnessing the immune system to treat them. And and so we're we're doing that now. So How has that affected your personal interactions with patients from the time when you were treating patients with poisons, chemotherapy to the way you're treating them now? Okay. Well, I mean, first off, I should say, unfortunately, we still do use some poison, yes. um, but because it actually can be very effective. Um, but we're trying to move away more and more from that um, non-selective, more likely to be toxic therapy. And so um, I just think that, that we're able to have a lot more sort of rational hope with the patient. I mean, you can imagine if I used to be able to say, you know, you've got this terrible leukemia and I can think of another type of leukemia retreat frequently. Um, with mechanism targeted therapy. And, you know, in the old days, oh my gosh, it was toxic. And you just knew you were in for this horrible ride and they might get through it. But there was about a 30% chance that they would hemorrhage into their brain oh, um, within, oh. within like, you know, a week or two. Um, now we're curing with this targeted therapy that targets their mechanism more than 95% of them. I mean, it's, it's like 98, 99%. So you can imagine that that changes your interaction with the patient when you're able to come in and say, okay, we've yes. got to figure out what you got. We got this really good targeted therapy. It's actually still gonna be kind of dicey. We need to know what we're doing here, but it's not gonna be nearly as bad as it used to be. And we're gonna get you through this. So, um, and you know, pretty much likely cure you. It's not gonna be any fun, but we're gonna be there with you and we're gonna get you through it. And, and there's a high chance that they'll actually be cured. Well, Bob, that's amazing. I mean, it's motivating just, just listening to you. Seems like a great time to take a break. We're going to talk about a lot more exciting things in this field when we get back after the break right here on Dr. Doctor. <laughs> and we're back with Dr. Robert Collins. Bob's going to tell us more about uh, his life as an oncologist in treating leukemia and lymphoma. Uh, but one thing that Chris talked about in the introduction that we'd like to get some uh, pointed answers on is what is the relationship between bone marrow transplantation and what some people would refer to as adult stem cell therapy? Yeah, those are basically interchangeable therapy, uh, terms. Um, when you're doing a bone marrow transplant, you're transplanting stem cells um, and also immune cells, as we had talked about. So you can call that a bone marrow transplant or you can call it a stem cell transplant. You're talking about the same thing. You are talking about these adult um, stem cells. And, and actually, we're not talking about the embryonic stem cells or any of that stuff, which is right. you know, unethical. And what are these stem cells? What are the, the names of those cells that are in the mix that you're injecting? Well, um, they're called hematopoietic stem cells. Hmm. And then just cells that are somewhat more differentiated, somewhat more mature than that, called hematopoietic progenitor cells. And then the immune cells would include B cells, T cells, and natural killer cells. So that would be what's in the gamish of a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant. Now, Bob, you mentioned something near and dear to my heart because you said the word umbilical cord. Um, <laughs> but but uh, ex explain that. Explain the role of uh, donated uh, cord blood at birth uh, to your work in these cancers? Well, so um, early on, a problem had been we just didn't have enough match donors for uh, patients. And so they needed to find some other sources. And one source would be umbilical cord blood because, you know, the, the baby is born and then you have the umbilical cord and it's actually full of stem cells. Mm -hmm. So you can strip that, that cord and, and harvest a, a bunch of stem cells. And um, it's, it's still a relatively small amount, but they're very, they're, they're very rich in stem cells and that can be used for a successful uh, stem cell transplant. And those are usually used in children, although they are sometimes used in adult. But there have been many, many successful stem cell transplants carried out using um, umbilical cord blood. And so there now, are these... Uh, will the umbilical cord cells be rejected by the recipient unless they are on rejection medicine? 
Yeah, for the most part, the, the recipient needs to be um, to have their immune system knocked out, and that's by that high dose chemotherapy and, and radiation, which allows the, the umbilical cord cells. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it allows them to come in. One of the things I've always admired about oncologists is that you have to have really deep conversations with people because they're often facing their own mortality. How do you? How did you prepare to do that, and how do you do it now? And how does your faith play a role in that? Well. Um, yeah, you do have in these conversations really with basically every one of them because they they come to your clinic and they've been told they have like leukemia with a horrible term like that or lymphoma and they know that it's potentially a bad disease. Oftentimes we can just reassure them and and it takes some time though, it, you know, just talking about it and reassuring them that they have one of these types of, of um, leukemia that tends to behave or lymphoma that behaves very quietly and indolently and that they've actually got a good prognosis. But there are other times um, where it's going to be a different story, and it can be all the way at the other end of the spectrum, where you just don't, um, you know, you don't have anything to, to cure to cure them. Um, you're, you're going to stick by them, and you let them know that um, we're going to stick by them, even if you know, it's sort of regardless. I mean, our, our goal might be to, um, well, I mean, actually, part of it is talking to the patient and say, "What are your goals?" and, and getting to know them and. Um, and, and saying that we're there with you no matter what and, and that they, they need to understand that. And, and oftentimes we can walk side by side for weeks or months or even longer. And sadly, sometimes we get to the end, but we got to make sure that patient knows that we're there for them during that part too. You know, We may not have something that can cure their disease, but we, do, we, we can help their symptoms, um, help, help them be at home or in the hospital if that's where they want to be, be with family members, and we're just going to stick with them through the whole thing. Bob, how do you feel like your your Catholic faith informs that work uh, on a day-to-day basis? Um, you know, it's, I, I'm, I've been fortunate to have sort of a conversion experience as an adult. Hmm. And I started off in this field because I just thought it was incredibly interesting. Scientifically I, interesting. Exactly. Right? And I, I did connect with the patients to some extent, but I would just have to say that these sort of deep connections have happened since I um, became a Catholic. And um, um, I guess. Isn't there a story back there that involves a patient oh, and your God. conversion? Oh, well, um, as all the conversion stories have lots and lots and lots of um, components to it. I mean, for me, it was while I was in the research laboratory talking with a colleague about a bunch of mechanisms and it was just fascinating. And, and all of a sudden this thought came in from like right outside of my head that said, isn't this just too amazing to have just happened? Uh, and, and it just, I mean, that was God talking to me basically. And that just struck me and it, it changed my life really. It got me to thinking about these sort of deeper issues. And, but along the way I had a lot of interactions with patients and I mean, I could see I was being called to help them out with their disease or whatever, but, in many, many cases, they were helping me out. And so I can remember one who was praying for Dr. Collins, who he sort of liked, but didn't like that much because he could tell I was kind of a cold fish. And so he, um, he prayed for me and just had this sense that he should give me a certain book. And it was a critical book in my conversion. I actually already had a copy of it, but it was just a crummy paperback, dingy word. I never would have read it, but he gave me this nice hardback copy you know, I, but I would just have to say there are so many examples where patients, you know, did some little thing or said some little thing that helped me, you know, ultimately in, in my conversion. And so I just I have gotten this sense that there's a whole lot more going on in the patient's illness and treatment than we would ever imagine without this, this sort of eyes of faith. And I, mean, I think what's going on is that God is healing the patients, but he's healing the doctor and everyone else who's involved in this <laughs> members and um, you know, his grace is just pouring into to the whole thing. And um, we have this opportunity to to participate in it. Uh, when I say healing, he's, he's, of course, healing the patient physically. And it's just a blessing as a doctor to be able to be involved with that. Um, but he's also healing them spiritually in this very deep way. And it's it, it actually, as a Christian doctor, I feel like we're sometimes called to play a role even in that. You'll get yeah. this nudge to say something to the patient that ends up being sort of just the right thing that they needed to, to say. And, and it's really not you. It's it's God that's doing that. So I think Catholicism is all about um, putting us in union with with God. I mean, as Jesus said, we're 
you know, we need to be branches on the vine. Mm-hmm. And his life needs his life and his love needs to be surging into us. And we're not really um, who we're supposed to be until that's happening. But when that is happening, then you begin to see Jesus and the patient. And then you're able to bring Jesus in you, you know, the, the portion of Christ that you're gifted with, to you're being able to bring that into the to the mix. And so with creativity and intellect, but, you know, especially with love and compassion and, and care, just sort of as, as a conduit uh, for, for God's love and his healing of this patient. Wow, Bob, that's impressive. You know, as I listen to you say that, you know, I'm sure that some of our listeners may themselves be college students or maybe even medical students or maybe uh, the child of one of our listeners. And, you know, if they're if they're thinking about a career in medicine and maybe they've got a, a little bit of a pull towards towards hematology and oncology and cancer, what would you say to them, you know, at this point? Well, I would say explore it for sure. If you've got that <laughs> little tug, maybe you're being tugged, you know, so it's a calling. <laughs> Um, but I definitely have felt like it's a calling uh, for me. But I'm sure some people would say, "Gosh, I don't want to do that. That's a downer. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna deal with people dying of cancer all day every day." I know. So all I can tell you is a couple things. You know, one is as I've alluded to. I mean, it's it is fascinating stuff. So if you're a student who really likes your sciences, you like the molecular biology and the biochemistry and immunology, man, this is for you. <laughs> and it's going to be amazingly exciting over the next few decades. Uh, what happens in the field, um, but the other is just these incredibly rich experiences, and I would just that you that you have with patients, and that you have seen God work in their lives, and um, just all these interconnections. And um, it's all I can say is it's an it's an incredibly rich life as a physician. And if you feel called to it, I think you you sure want to explore that and see if it might in fact be right for you. Bob, I treat cancer all day long, but there's skin cancers that are easy to see with the naked eye. The ones you treat aren't. So early diagnosis with the cancer I treat is important, but it's even probably more important with yours. What is being done to diagnose blood cancers earlier? Well, yeah, that is true. This is a big issue. I mean, a lot of the, I told about a lot of successes we have in blood cancers, but you know, we still lose a lot of patients. So we have a long, long way to go. And one of the big issues is that patients oftentimes present with really advanced disease. So their disease has been percolating along for years and acquiring lots and lots of mutations so that by the time you see them, they just have this incredibly complex disease that you're really just not going to be able to cure. But what if you could have detected it way back earlier when it was a much less right. um, you know, mutated disease? And so that's where early detection comes in. And um, all I can say is that there's some really interesting approaches to this that are being developed. I mean, you know, one basic idea is to say, you know, you could sequence the DNA of blood of every single person. <laughs> and, yeah, and you know you'd pick up these these abnormalities early on, but you can't go sequencing every single person. It's just completely infeasible. But you might be able to identify people where it would be worth sequencing. They've got a high enough chance that they might have something that that test might come out positive. And so what's being done is this just sort of deep mining, um, you know, using machine learning algorithms of patient databases to see if you can identify people who just have this little spectrum of a few particular abnormalities that might point you towards there might be something going on here and would, would help you select that patient too. That's a patient who it might be worth doing um, DNA sequencing to pick up the disease earlier. So, I mean, this is real early, but I mean, that if we can begin to see the, the basic outlines of it. And I do think that that's something along those lines is what we'll be doing in the future to, wow. to help catch these diseases earlier. So, Bob, I, I don't know how many times patients have said to me, you know, I don't, I don't feel right. Check my blood, you know, do a complete blood count on me. And I would try not to roll my eyes, but I would think that's not going to tell me anything. I, I don't think you're anemic. I can look at you and tell that, uh-huh. but that's really not true anymore of the, of the so-called CBC or complete blood count. Tell our listeners a little bit about what's going on there and what that means. Well, I mean, still is probably true. I mean, I, I would just say that if you've got a patient who is all worried, but they have a normal blood count, I mean, they're probably fine. Yeah. But there is this um, this new phenomenon which is being described, and we're just at the beginning of understanding. I think it's going to be a big deal. I mean, you know, the basic idea is that there are people walking around who actually do have a normal blood count, and they um, they actually have when you sequence their blood, you can detect that a lot of their blood cells in this normal blood count have these scary mutations in them. I mean, the kind of mutations that you see with leukemia. And Bob, before you go there. 
one step in between that we often think, oh, well, if you look at it under the microscope, they'll certainly look abnormal. But they don't. Uh, yeah, exactly. Do they in right. this case? They don't, they don't. Yeah. So that it's a normal blood count. It looks normal under the, the smear. But when you do DNA sequencing, you find that uh, a large percentage of their cells possibly have these scary mutations in them, and yet nothing's going on. So this is this has recently been discovered, and it turns out that probably about 10% of people age 70 have this phenomenon going on. And as you get up to age 90, you know, probably 40% of people have this. So, so this is a very common thing. And as you might expect, if you have these kind of mutations in some blood cells, that might suggest that you have an increased risk of leukemia or similar disorders, and it's true. But what's um, surprising, it turns out, that they have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, so like myocardial infarction or stroke. And we have some ideas as to why that might be occurring, but all I can say is that it's early. And this is probably a, a very important independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So we're in the midst of, of studying a lot of patients and trying to figure out, you know, which mutations uh, really are scary, uh, which ones aren't. I mean, they're going to do just fine. The ones that are scary, what do you do about that? How can you um, intervene early, perhaps, with some sort of therapy to, per, you know, to lessen their risk of getting leukemia or lessen their risk of getting cardiovascular disease? So it's a very hot area in our field, very exciting and we're going to be learning a lot over the next few years. But it hasn't reached the clinic quite yet, has it? It really hasn't. I mean, we just don't know yet right now what to do with the information. What that idea is fascinating, almost a carcinoma in situ, as, as Tom and I say on pathology reports. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The answer sort of waiting to be. Yeah, they um, call this clonal hematopoiesis uh, of indeterminate potential. Or so. CHIP. CHIP, right. <laughs> that, that'll be easier. Sure meaning you just don't remember. know what the you know, what's, what the importance of it is in a particular individual. If one of our listeners or one of their family members has recently been diagnosed with one of these blood cancers, what would you recommend they do? Well, I, I do think actually that it's really important that they get to an oncologist who is a subspecialist in these particular uh, diseases, blood cancers. Um, you know, I, I think many, many of us oncologists are generalists, but as as we've discussed, um, blood cancers, you know, there's at least 200 different types of them. It's, it's important to figure out exactly what type they have. And so um, for starters to uh, get to a, a specialist in that, or at least get a second opinion from someone like that. And then well, if I could interrupt you, Bob, let's walk <laughs> listeners through. So you did uh, your medical school and then you studied internal medicine and then you studied hematology and oncology and then you have additional training in these blood cancers. Right. That's and what so I mean when, when you say subspecialist. Yeah, so, so I could say sub-subspecialist. Right. Because, yeah. you know, so I, I focus pretty much just on blood cancer. So you wouldn't want me to take care of your colon cancer, but you would want me to take care of your leukemia. And so it's the same thing. I think in our field, um, more and more as all these cancers become more complicated, that more and more people are sort of focusing on particular disease types. So to make sure you've got someone who really knows the ins and outs of the disease that you might have just been diagnosed with, I think it's important to get to someone who focuses on that. And what future uh, directions in your field have you the most excited right now? Well, you know, it's um, really just everything we've been talking about. You get a you get a sense, and and I've I really just touched the surface, and so I think what's going to be happening over the next. Um, few years, it gets me excited. It's just more of the same, actually. So more and more of more deeper understanding of more deep understanding of the molecular mechanism, mechanisms of these various diseases, and therefore coming up with new ways of targeting their uh, Achilles heel, sort of. So targeting these molecular mechanisms that drive the diseases, um, and then the other would just be more of more sophistication in the immunotherapy that we're doing. I mean, that's that's going to get so sophisticated that I think there's no doubt that we're going to be using a lot of immunotherapy much earlier in the course of patient's disease. How common is it now with a blood cancer patient that you actually sequence their DNA to find the mutation driving their specific cancer? It's actually pretty common. So um, we certainly get a history and physical and imaging studies and a biopsy, and we look at it under the microscope and do flow cytometry. But a lot of what we do these days is um, sequencing of several dozen or even hundreds of genes, and that can help us get a real sense as to what the molecular circuitry is of their particular disease. And we can use that to help us assess prognosis in their case, but oftentimes to help us um, 
determine a target that we might have a targeted medication for. So I, I do this in pretty much all my leukemia patients and increasingly I'm doing it in my lymphoma patients. It, it gives us real insight that, that oftentimes we can act on. Now we can act on it. In the future, we'll really be able to act on it. I mean, one new thing that we're doing is single cell sequencing. So in the lab, we can actually sequence individual cells and look at the mutation profile in that. And by doing that, kind of define a molecular hierarchy for how their disease is set up. So then you can really see what an ideal um, Achilles heel would, would be to go after. And so that's sort of in the lab right now, but I think that'll be in clinical practice within maybe five years or so. As well, we get more and more targeted drugs. I mean, it's, we have a lot of targets now, a lot of targeted drugs, but um, there's a lot of hope, I think, for getting additional targeted drugs for these uh, targets as they're identified. So, Bob, you know, all of us in medicine uh, deal with information, a lack of information, sometimes an information overload. Uh, and I know my patients and Tom's patients certainly spend a lot of time on Google after they talk to us. So getting good information can be really, really tough. What's a good place for patients to look if they want to learn more about their own diagnosis or a relative's diagnosis for a blood-borne cancer like this? Well, I would say um, there are some real good websites. And um, so there are some big foundations that exist to raise a lot of money for these diseases, but also to educate patients so, that, so they have good websites. Leukemia Lymphoma Society, we work with a lot. They have a great, a great one. Um, Lymphoma Research Foundation, uh, Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, uh, Myelodysplasia, or yeah, Myelodysplastic Syndrome Foundation. Um, so these are, these are good places to start. I guess another would be cancer.gov. Uh, GOV and just a good website with lots of basic information about pretty much all the different types of cancers. Bob, in our last 30 seconds, what's your final word that you want our listeners to hear? Well, I guess hope would be the word. And so um, there's a lot of hope in dealing with these patients um, from a, um, a medical perspective and research perspective perspective, of course, but also I, I think as I've alluded to, there's real hope um, just knowing that God is working in their lives and, and he is healing them in a much broader and deeper way than we can imagine. But in the meantime, those patients are going through a real valley and they need your prayers. So I would say pray for, pray for these patients and then pray for us too who are taking care of them. Bob Collins, thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. I'm sure our listeners loved what you had to say. You are sure welcome. It was great talking to you guys. Take care. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Listeners, you know it's time for the answer to this week's medical trivia question, blood cells. What else? So you got a 50% chance of getting this one right, Tom. There's only two choices. Uh, as Tom pointed out, 80% of all of our cells in the average human body are red blood cells. And that doesn't count the bacteria and the other stuff that we carry around that count as cells. But Tom, repose the question for listeners. Which number is greater, the number of red blood cells in the average adult human being or the U.S. national debt in dollars? Did you know the answer to this before you saw it? Well, I'm a bit cynical about national debt, so I'm. <laughs> it's hard for me to get past thinking that has to be the answer. Well, the U.S. national debt is currently about $29 trillion. The average number of red blood cells in an adult is about $25 trillion. So Chris is right. The debt wins or loses, depending on which way you want to look at it. <laughs> That's still a whole lot of blood cells. But if you take all of the cells in our body, then it does outpace the national debt. So from there, we go to the top three takeaways. Take it away, Chris. Yeah, in no, in no uh, certain order, but you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is this idea, it's very important for listeners, we don't have to destroy human embryos to get these so important stem cells. Adult stem cells are readily available, and they're being used to cure uh, horrible diseases. They can come, for example, from umbilical cords, and we don't have to destroy babies to get them. Remember that, listeners, when you hear that talked about in the popular press. Uh, secondly, you know, quite simply, a diagnosis of leukemia or lymphoma or myeloma it's not a death sentence, not necessarily, not anymore. And that's really changed, Tom, over mine and your medical career, oh, yes. hasn't it? Yes. It's amazing how that's changed. 
And then probably most importantly, I really loved it uh, when Bob talked about this, but you know, hear this uh, listeners and take it, take it home with you. <laughs> when you help, you help us as physicians much more than we could ever help you. Um, that's just a reality that may not necessarily be intuitive. I think Bob did a great job of pointing that out. He reminded me of a hundred examples of that in my own career. And I, Tom, I know you've experienced that yes. as well. But when you, when you pray for us, you're doing much, much more than you could ever imagine. So, so please, please keep doing it. Pray for your physicians and your nurses and your caregivers. Um, we need it. And then maybe as a bonus, top three, another way to say is four. Um, <laughs> that idea that he left us with, and that is hope. You know, uh, there is hope. He's right. And there's a lot of it. And that God is healing you, maybe, or especially even in the face of a devastating disease and diagnosis. So hang on to that hope. Uh, don't forget it. Thank you for being with us, our faithful listeners, for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. And please check out this episode and all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. And if, if you want to dive a little deeper, you can find your way to some of the program notes that go with each talk for some bonus information about the speakers and the like. Just click latest at the top of the main page. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.